From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. Institute fellow Philip Dre is the author of several works of American social and cultural history, covering a range of subjects, from civil rights to labor history and the history of science. In his latest work, The Fair Chase, Dre turns his attention to the history of hunting in America. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let me begin by asking uh, what you thought of as your ideal reader for this book, uh, which is an especially complicated question, I think, today, uh, since the divide between those who hunt and those who don't is pretty wide. Uh, yes, that's true. In fact, that was really the impetus, in a way, for me to start on the project. I looked at hunting as something that had a long historical trajectory in America and yet had brought us to a place where it had become a kind of red state, blue state issue. Mm-hmm. And I had fond memories. I never was a hunter, but I grew up in Minnesota. It had a big hunting and fishing culture. And I kind of grew up in this atmosphere in which all those kind of outdoor sports, hunting, fishing, what have you, were considered very wholesome pursuits. And I, so I began to wonder what had happened to this sort of uh, acceptance of this particular form of recreation. And that led me to really take up the this particular project. In answer to your question about the ideal reader, that's always been a little bit of an issue, I think. I was trying to write a book that would not take any particular side of the argument too completely, but rather kind of air it out as much as possible. As I mentioned, I'm not a hunter. I came at it as an outsider, which in itself is very rare. There are not many books about hunting written by people who either hate hunting or are advocates or hunters themselves. Uh, And so I thought I would try to bring something new in that way. In terms of the ideal reader, I just hope it's somebody who is, like me, curious about the way in which sports over many, many years and decades influence American history and culture and is open-minded enough to kind of be willing to weigh all the various arguments, both pro and con, regarding hunting. Well, I think that's one of the really fascinating aspects of this history is the way in which really the birth of modern sports coincides with the birth of the idea of the the modern hunter. Well, it's interesting. I was surprised actually to find how in the 1830s, 1840s, when sport hunting really kind of began to be written about, as you mentioned, in a lot of New York-based publications like the Spirit of the Times, how sport, the word sport itself, was considered to be a sort of demimonde of urban sports, so-called like ratting, mm-hmm. cockfighting, all kinds of things, boxing to a certain extent. And so sport hunting became this kind of gentlemanly uh, intro- introduction of this gentlemanly pursuit The magazines you mentioned picked up very quickly on the idea that hunting narratives were great reading. And there were many practitioners, especially there was a man named Frank Forrester was his pen name, an Englishman who had kind of washed up in New York. And he had turned out to be a very gifted writer in terms of describing the kind of the elite way to hunt. Uh, And so it was this sort of combining with the kind of Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, sort of buckskin, moccasin-wearing frontier hunter that kind of came together in the synergy and created the American sport hunter. I do want to ask you about the the title, which I think gets into this question of the aristocratic versus the non-aristocratic uh, exercise of the sport in, in, in American history, and particularly in the 19th century. When you say the fair chase, what does that refer to exactly? The fair chase was a a phrase that was, it's associated with something called the Boone and Crockett Club, which was a group of elite New York hunters headed by Teddy Roosevelt in the late 19th century and included a number, of, a number of other luminaries whose names you might recognize as well. But Fair Chase, basically what that was, was a kind of a, an Americanization of what the British called true sportsmanship. 
And true sportsmanship was basically, just like it sounds like, it was meant to be a gentlemanly way to shoot. In other words, you were not supposed to shoot game birds on the ground. You had to shoot them in the air. You weren't allowed to aim at a bunch of them, but rather one at a time, and so on and so on. The idea was to give animals, prey animals, a chance to evade the hunter. And this, of course, we still have these issues today. Fair chase is still the motto of the Boone and Crockett Club. And over the years, starting in, in the 1880s, 1890s, people like Roosevelt and his colleagues were busy trying to combat hunting practices they considered barbaric. For instance, using dogs to drive deer into a lake where they were basically helpless and could be easily killed or chasing them onto icy snow where they were immobilized. And similar things with other... Jack lighting, or it's jack, jack, is that what it's called? They, they had many different names, but yes, jack lighting was a very common... In the 19th or 20th century, was known as um, a shining deer. I know where I come from in Minnesota, shining deer. Basically, that deer become mesmerized by lights if you shine them in their eyes. And jack lighting was you'd use a boat to go at night where the deer were feeding on the lily pads and use a torch to suddenly freeze them in place, and they could be easily shot and killed. Those were practices that Roosevelt and people in the Boone and Crockett Club fought vehemently. It took them about 20 years, actually, to get them outlawed. But today, we still see these type of issues still come up. In other words, can a hunter use drones? Can a hunter use trail cameras to capture the nighttime activity of animals when they're back and sleeping in the motel and so on? So these are all kind of fair chase issues. And serious hunters today, it really, I should say, it's actually been a success in a way that fair chase, the fair chase ethos really did catch on. And it actually today very much kind of rules the whole idea of game management. As anyone knows who does hunt, there are all kinds of restrictions and rules and permits that are needed. It's a very governed sport. And a lot of that has been internalized over the generations by hunters themselves in terms of basically a fair chase ethos towards the animals that are being killed. You're really not talking about people who are going out to hunt so that they can... It's not subsistence hunting, for example. It's not Right. right. And in that regard, it seems very much different from the sort of image of uh, Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone, the wild frontiersman, wilderness taming right. um, sort of hunter. Yes, of course. I mean, Boone was a very sort of self-effacing individual, despite his huge fame. He was really like one of the founding fathers. In other words, he never sat in a parliament or a constitutional convention of any kind. But in his own way, he was a huge figure uh, in America in the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, but a very sort of modest individual. He sort of went about his way and kind of shunned attention as much as he could, partly because he was often in financial difficulty and trying to sort of talk his way out of some issues he was in. He was a very a kind of a likable person because he was very much like anybody else, really. Crockett, on the other hand, was – David Crockett came along about 20, 30 years later. Crockett was a congressman, Representative David Crockett from Tennessee. And de Tocqueville uh, wrote about him. Yes, exactly. And de Tocqueville, of course, was amazed by him that here was someone who was like – unlettered, uncouth character. And also the thing about Crockett was that he, unlike Boone, he loved being a celebrity. He wrote numerous books that were kind of these like tall tales about hunting, about Davy Crockett fights a tornado and Crockett climbs down into a ravine to catch a grizzly bear and all these kind of crazy stories, but were hugely popular. And as we know, Crockett, not only was he well-known in his own lifetime, but even in the 20th century, you know, Davy Crockett in the 1950s, there was a huge 
renaissance of Davy Crockett and the coonskin cap. And I think it's interesting in a way how that image of this model of the the frontiersman with the unerring aim has always been, since Boone's time, has been this kind of go-to motif. In other words, you know, it's interesting when U.S. forces went to Europe in World War I, the story is that General Pershing said, Let's, we, don't, we don't need all this equipment. We just, we're, we we'll just bring our rifles. There was, there was this kind of idea that Americans knew how to shoot. And you see that with like, who are the heroes of the First World War? Like Sergeant York. He was this like country bumpkin who was, again, had like this. From sort Tennessee, of, I think. From Tennessee, right? again. Yeah. Uh, same thing in the Second World War with uh, Audie Murphy. And even now recently with Iraq, with this movie about Chris Kyle, the sharpshooter, the sniper. You know, this is kind of this thing. And so in the 50s, I think I can't help but think it had something to do with, of course, the Cold War. The idea that these characters were in a certain way antithetical to Soviet communism, the idea of like what could be more American really than someone like David Crockett. He died at the Alamo. He was, you know, Boone, Crockett, they were frontiersmen. They were on their own. They had allegiance to no one really except sort of the country in a larger, vague sort of way. But really they were you thought of them as being independent, but people who could take care of themselves, more, more or less. The idea that the gun was a kind of family heirloom, that it was almost a member of the family, and that it was also something that women were, were expected to or hoped that they might excel at is a fascinating part of your story, especially in the 19th century. Well, the idea of the gun being handed down from generation to generation, that actually, it sort of still pertains. It's only now in a way that that is sort of, as hunting is declining in numbers, I think in 1970, there were 40 million licensed hunters in America. Today, there are about 11 million. And one of the big problems is that most hunters are older than, say, 45, 46 years old. And so the young people today are not taking it up the way it used to be that, yes, you'd go out with grandpa's shotgun. It was, you know, like being par mitzvah or something. Here's your take, go up the hill with it. And you know, nowadays, the way we live, where America is an urban place, you can't just go up behind your house and most places, unless you maybe live in West Virginia or something. So there's been a very a decline. It's much harder to access habitat where you can hunt, for one thing. But to answer your question, there was, yeah, the the great popularity of hunting and also the shooting arts was huge in the mid-19th century. Uh, Creedmoor was a former farm out here on Long Island. It later became the site of a famous psychiatric hospital. Um, but, you know, it's remarkable when you go back and look. I was amazed to see the newspaper coverage of these shooting tournaments that were held, international shooting tournaments that were held at Creedmoor in the 1870s. It was like the World Cup times 10. People paid so much attention to this. And, you know, the New York Times coverage would be like analyzing every shot, basically. And you just look at this thing, how on earth, why would 10,000 people flock out to actually like spectate something like this? It just sounds like, to our way of thinking, it sounds like a very tedious way to spend an afternoon. But people took this very seriously. And of course, it spun off into college rifle teams. Uh, of course, trick shooting became hugely popular. I mean, remember Annie Oakley, who was part of the Buffalo Bill Wild West, was a huge celebrity. And, you know, all the, all the trick shooters, they would compete with one another, how many glass balls they could shoot out of the air, um, so on and so on. And there was also live pigeon shooting as well, which was controversial and sure. was eventually phased out. But it survives a bit. I know trap shooting is now an Olympic sport, and that's kind of the the remnant of it. But the idea, again, of it as a kind of spectator thing that you would go crowd into a grandstand to watch people 
do trick shooting. Uh, and also sharpshooting uh, was, you know, it was considered an art form that you would watch and admire. But there are other aspects, too, about, for example, the animal rights movement and the early ASPCA, for example, was so so much about people being appalled at the spectacle of shooting live birds as a way to perfect one's prowess as a, yes. a sharpshooter. Right. No, exactly. I mean, the thing that I found interesting, of course, is it was really the fair chase ethos, I think, that set the stage for the development of the conservation movement. Because certainly way, the conservation idea or visualization of humans' relationship with wildlife came out of this fair chase ethos, which the hunters had been working on and kind of developing. So in a certain way, the fair chase ethos was very successful, I think, in establishing this sense of hunting as this responsible activity. And of course, as you mentioned, by the late 1880s, you know, they were sending people out from Washington to actually count the buffalo. And at one point, William T. Hornaday, who was the head of the Smithsonian Institute, counted 1,842 buffalo that he could find basically west of the Mississippi. Now, of course, how he, you might challenge how he actually thought he had found them all. But when you consider that at one point there had been millions of buffalo, as recently as the end of the Civil War in the West, it's an actually atrocious kind of decline of a species. And they began seeing this with other species as well, white-tailed deer, the passenger pigeon, of course. Um, later in the 1890s, this is the origin of the Audubon Society, it has to do with what they call the plume wars, which was fighting against people who were slaughtering water birds in the Everglades and elsewhere in the Carolinas, egrets, flamingos, because there was a huge international fashion for ladies to wear bird feathers and even parts of birds in their hats. This was an enormous thing. Uh, and one ornithologist walked up Ladies Mile, which is right on 6th Avenue here in New York, by all the department stores, and just counted all the different species of birds he saw on women's hats as they walked by. And it was like, and you know, in those days, women had hats for different times of the day. Every Men and women both wore hats, but women... They would have like a hat to go to church, a hat to do something, you know, whatever. So bird ornamentation was a huge thing. And very interestingly, it was even though it was someone from Forest and Stream magazine, a man named George Bird Grinnell, obviously enough, who he was kind of a interesting man in his own right. He had grown up educated by Lucy Audubon, the widow of John James Audubon, and went on then to go west. Uh, he helped explore for dinosaur bones and rode with Custer and this kind of thing, but then came back and edited America's foremost outdoor hunting and fishing magazine, Forest and Stream, which now we know as Field and Field Stream. And Stream yeah. But he got this idea to start something called the Audubon Club. He wasn't able to kind of see it through himself. So the, women, the sort of society women of the East Coast sort of picked up the baton in Boston, Philly, at Smith College here in New York. And basically, it was the first environmental grassroots effort in America and was mostly the society women running it. Basically, the rhetoric was, we we have to stop this because we're, the women are the ones who are buying. We have to get them to stop buying, patronizing these people who are slaughtering the birds. Uh, and it, it proved to be successful. And of course, the success for any conservation effort is always when these things get placed into law. And that's what happened with the Plupumors were considered to be won when Congress enacted legislation outlawing a lot of these forms of gross market hunting of, of water birds. Well, that's one of the things also that's really interesting is that as we were talking earlier, I was thinking so much of, think about the impact of something like social media on, I mean, I think about a couple of years ago when Cecil the Lion was, was killed right. and this immediate 
global reaction to the I can't remember the name of the dentist who right. who was the he was the from hunter. my home state actually Walter Palmer I think yeah, his name that's, is. yeah, yeah the yes, dentist yeah. from Minnesota and well, I think of that as being something such a such a contemporary phenomenon but then there's a remarkable story you tell about this trial of a poacher in Yellowstone Park in, in 1894 and 95 that Grover Cleveland ended up sort of speaking out against buffalo slaughter in that context. Well, so it's, it's, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, remember the U.S. Army had to be sent in to For 20 years. They were yeah. there for a long time yeah. because the trouble is, you know, the you can pass laws and you can create a national park, but, you know, Yellowstone's a vast territory. This was, of course, a, a source of tension for many years, both in the Adirondacks and out west, too, is the idea that local folks who were called poachers by those who disliked them said, you have to stop shooting the elk and the buffalo. You can't do this anymore as you once did. Of course, their answer was, well, we've been living here for, who are you to come in here and tell us what to do? We've been cutting the timber and slaughtering the buffalo, and this is our, how we get by, basically. So everywhere there, and there were shootings in Pennsylvania as well. There was violence. Uh, one of the people, who, one of the Audubon agents who went on to Florida was was murdered by birders, or bird hunters down there. To answer your question, though, it's very interesting because the ability of anti-hunting sentiment to be disseminated over a large part of the population quickly. One thing that we should mention is, of course, the movie Bambi. Mm-hmm. You know, Bambi is something that that is a word that hunters to this day, you can get them riled up. They do not like the movie Bambi because, of course, they feel it is like such an unfair representation of wildlife and living in the wild, basically. Yeah. But anyone who's watched the movie, of course, knows that it's extremely powerful. It's effectively made and it's a, a classic, of course. And a lot of people still, like they say that, oh, everyone thinks of deer. Even people even call deer Bambi. And so this that was probably one of the first examples of something like that, of an individual, like a, this case, a fictional character being used basically to kind of antagonize hunters and also kind of encourage or gain sympathy among people who would oppose this. But you're right, something like the Cecil the Lion case. There were other cases in, you know, I think of these accidental shootings, uh, the case of Karen Ann Wood up in Maine, you know, I think in the 1980s or late 70s. A woman who went out into her backyard and was mistaken for a deer and was shot and killed. And it became a a big national story because, of course, she had just moved to the subdivision from California, I think. The person who shot her was a a local man who'd been hunting for years. And he was eventually, the grand jury refused to indict him. So this type of, those kind of stories, even before social media, had a way of kind of electrifying the issue. Do you think hunters feel uh, a particular sort of threat today? And um, uh, This is probably the first generation that basically the ethics of hunting, that's become a, a topic that I think is charged in a way that it probably wasn't 20 years ago. And the idea of killing an animal in any circumstances, but especially right. under hunting, has become for the first time really up for grabs. And I wonder how, what your sense of that is, what your sense of the and the future of hunting is. I mean, it's, as you've pointed out, it, the numbers have declined quite a bit. Well, hunters I've talked to, they take very seriously the obligation to sort of defend hunting and even to try to explain to you why it is they enjoy it and why they still believe it's, you know, their their arguments are basically that animal populations rise and fall on their own, basically, and that they're taking part in a natural cycle of a phenomena that is has always been there. In other words, 
people have been hunting for as far back as we know. And hunters speak of this powerful sense they have of doing something that is what they should be doing, basically. That this is what, when they are doing it, they feel alive and connecting to nature in a certain way that no other activity, outdoor recreational activity, will suffice. One thing, as you've mentioned, I think is the nature of the way we think about animal lives has evolved so much since around the same time sport hunting took off in America, around right after the Civil War, is right here in New York is where the ASPCA started. The initial concern was horses mm -hmm. being mistreated. From there, it spread to the shooting of pigeons in just for sport. Uh, at one point, actually, people from the West, the army officers in the West, contacted the Animal Humane Society here to say, can you do something about the buffalo? So there you had this kind of crossover of someone in their office in New York being asked to do something about the buffalo, declining buffalo population in Nebraska and Wyoming and so on. From there, I guess, I mean, just in a general way, of course, we many are familiar with the animal liberation movement that connected with Peter Singer that started probably in the 1970s, I guess. So you went from animal protection, which is what the ASPCA was about, to a more, a large, more philosophical animal liberation, which basically asked, don't these animals, they have a right to their lives just as we do. To today, you actually have a movement of what you might call animal citizenship, the idea that we're not – just liberation is not going far enough. That we need to find creative ways to actually engage with these are our fellow beings here on this planet and that we need to think of more creative and ethical ways basically to relate to them. And of course, as you know, in the last five, ten years, there have been hundreds of books that have come out all about how intelligent animals are and fish, you know, what a fish knows. And there was an article in The Times recently that was like – fish feel pain. Now what do we do? Mm -hmm. Which I thought was a very interesting way to put it. And that was, that's, because that really is what it is. That's where ethics begin. When you know that something suffers, then you have to have an ethical response to it. And so that's, in a way, that's where this, these larger questions come from. Like, who are we and what are we, how do we relate to, to animal populations? Sure. And hunting goes straight to the, to the heart of that question. Well, this has been a really, uh, a really interesting conversation about uh, history of hunting in America, and I don't feel that I can uh, leave the conversation without asking you just a little bit about this particular question about Second Amendment and the National Rifle Association and its relationship to to hunting. I know that after after the Parkland High School shootings in February. There was a moment when Dick Sporting Goods announced, which is sort of the, the Macy's of hunting, um, announced that it would no longer sell assault rifles. And I'm curious, on the one hand, how that sort of played out with, with hunters, but also just a broader question about how hunters feel about the perhaps the, the strong association that has been established thanks to the National Rifle Association between hunting and Second Amendment rights. I'm sure there is a lot of spillover. Uh, obviously, I think there are probably hunters who are into being NRA members, but there uh, has also been a lot of pullback, I think, over the last 10 or 15 years in particular from hunters who are, you know, they're conscious of the fact that hunting is very much a single-shot sport. It's all about being careful, getting up early, moving stealthily through forest, hoping that you will get after hours of arduous pursuit, a chance for your one shot at a prey animal. So the idea of an assault weapon is completely 
it's just antithetical to the idea of hunting and the ethos of hunting. So I found that a lot of hunters, they honor the past association with the NRA when the NRA was more of a gun safety and kind of hunter's friend organization. Uh, but in the 1970s, the NRA was taken over by Second Amendment absolutists and hardliners. And really, they've never looked back since then. Uh, and so while, I, again, I can't speak for all hunters, but I have found there's definitely a move to disassociate a bit from it. Um, I went to a convention a few years ago where literally you could see the it was hugely crowded and people would just kind of like part and go around the NRA booth. They didn't want to be associated with it. And I know there are organizations out west, I think in Oregon, of hunters who are basically organized to kind of pursue sensible gun control, kind of in the name of, you know, we're gun owners too, and we want to have our voice. The NRA is not the only there should not be the only one hurt. Mm -hmm. Does that play into at all to the? I know that there's a kind of reinterest in bow hunting, for example. Um, and is that sort of associated with perhaps a move away from from? Rivals? Yeah, that's a very good and, point, actually. It's interesting, yeah, because bow hunting is one of the most popular trends in hunting right now. I think it's partly that. I think also partly just our era's kind of interest in authenticity. A lot of people feel that bow hunting obviously is extremely difficult, obviously because you have to get closer to what you're mm -hmm. hunting. It's hard. Some people have even said that people like it because your chance of actually killing something is reduced a great deal without having a high-powered rifle. But th that is possible, yeah, that there is this, you know, the bow and arrow, it, it recalls a kind of a type of hunting that's very much associated with Native Americans and kind of of the earth a bit more. Yeah. Is there anything comparable that comes out of, you know, the farm-to-table movement or or hipster hunting or no absolutely there's they call it they call themselves DIY hunters I call them adult onset hunters <laughs> um, no it's a huge thing they have their own magazine actually and I've met several people it's fascinating things people who basically were some of them were vegans or vegetarians they take food politics very seriously and they've decided they don't want to be part of the meat industrial complex basically but they want to eat meat so they've decided if they're going to do that they are going to do it themselves. They're going to hunt and field dress animals and learn the whole thing. And so there have been several books written by people, men and women both, who go from, from zero to 60, basically. They don't know anything about hunting. They take classes. They get a permit. They go to Walmart. They buy a gun or dicks. Mm -hmm. And they go out and they, you know, maybe with someone coaching them. And, you know, it's like this tale. And, of course, every narrative leads up to the same thing where they eventually do manage to shoot something. And then, of course, have that whole experience of, you know, either what have I done or, right. you know, both that and also this kind of celebrating the moment as well. Well, my my one confession is that I never really hunted. I grew up, the, the closest I really got to it was uh, frog gigging. Uh, my dad was a big fan of frog gigging, which it's how you get frog legs, which is I still, I guess, in some quarters of the South, a delicacy. delicacy. I did at one point purchase a freezer to deal with the amount of deer meat that, and deer sausage that was being sent to me by my brother-in-law. So, uh, so I didn't actually hunt it, but I was happily eating it. Right, so. right. Well, I, I feel like there's a kind of a spectrum of hypocrisy about hunting and our relation to animals and eating animals generally because we all are – you know, who's to say if you're not a hunter? You know, many people will say, oh, I would never hunt. I could never shoot an innocent animal. Meanwhile, I'll stop at the supermarket on the way home and get a shrink wrap steak or chicken or whatever it is. So we're all kind of, whether it's like usurping 
habit, wildlife habitat or even a, even a farm, even an organic farm has that effect on local wildlife. So we're all kind of complicit in a certain way. And when, again, whether you're buying meat at, or buying fish or meat at the market or maybe you would look down on someone who would actually go out and hunt, but hunters might think, well, I'm – I, there's a virtue in what I'm doing as well or whatever it, it might be. So that's why I think I tried to get at that a little bit in the book as well, and the idea that we're all kind of on this spectrum somewhere or another. And it's, it's you know, something like 95% of Americans eat meat once a week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as much as we, everybody knows a vegan or a vegetarian, but it isn't, so far at least, it's not that huge a movement that it's, it's really affecting dietary habits, so to speak. Yeah. Well, we started with the uh, blue state, red state divide among hunters and non-hunters, right. and we're now we've, we've bridged that gap. Right. So um, thank you very much. Sure. Really Thanks again. Your, Thanks for having this me. conversation. Sure. Thanks. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Bear and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 